This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media i'm very excited about today's guest i know i say i'm very excited about a lot of guests but I, that's because i don't have people on here very often either it's like my dad gave me writing advice he said every sentence needs to either be good or important um which is an incredibly difficult writing uh ideal to live up to but it's directionally good advice if the sentence is important uh, it has to be in there. And if the sentence is good, the reader will forgive you for it not being important. Um, and so all the guests I have on here are either, I think are important or good or sometimes both. And that brings me to David Brooks, who is both. And actually, I would say he gets closer than most to having sentences hit the Sid Goldberg ideal of both good and important. Um, you guys all know him as a New York Times columnist. He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic. And he's got a new book, how to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. Uh, David, welcome back to The uh, Remnant. Thank you. Uh, I think I was on one of your early podcasts uh, way back when you first started this thing. You were indeed. You told a fantastic story about John Podoritz and, and, and boxing or something like that. I can't remember the details. <laughs> yeah. but Because those are two things that go together in everyone's mind is John Podoritz and boxing. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, uh, my first question to people uh, moving books around here is always, uh, what's your book about? And I know it's, it's in the subtitle, but like, it, go on. Yeah. So, um, you know, we live in brutal times, uh, politically brutal, internationally brutal. Uh, and so I decided the only response to brutal times is to be a, a defiant humanist. It's the ability to spread a little understanding, to understand the people around you and make them feel seen, heard, and understood. And so, you know, I look at around at American society, and you look at the rising depression rates, rising suicide rates, uh, the number of people who say, say they have no close personal friends uh, has gone up by four times. The number of people who rate themselves in the lowest happiness category has gone up by 50%. And so the only way to respond to that uh, is to develop the skills to know people better. Uh, and so basically the book is me walking people through the skills from the first moment we encounter someone through just hanging out with someone, through going out drinking, through having great conversations, through having conversations across political difference, uh, through sitting with someone in depression. I just walk people basically through the skills of how you can show up better for other human beings. So one of the reasons I like this, this, this approach, um, you know, the, if you were going to boil down my conservatism to a pithy aphorism or a famous quote, it would be the Hannah Arendt's observation that every generation Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children, right? And civilization is literally what you do with the barbarians to turn them into civilized people. And it starts with families modeling good behavior. And then as they get more developed and get more skills, it's peers and institutions and teachers and and synagogues and churches and all of these kinds of things. And because the simple fact is, is that we have, we are not born blank slates. We're born with factory installed software, but it needs updates, right? And that's sort of what your book is about is we, we've somehow missed a really important patch <laughs> to some recent problems. I hate this metaphor is going way too far, but you get the point. Um, and people are forgetting some really important things that are part of being in a civilization or a community, if that's a softer, friendlier word, um, and of being civilized and communal. Yeah, the, the old conservative writer, Paul Weaver, 
um, who wrote Ideas Have Consequences. He said the problem with the younger generation is that they haven't read the minutes to the last meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, but, I, you know, I, I think it's not only young people these days. It's all of us. If, if um, So there's a guy who does research at the University of Texas, and he finds out when human beings first meet each other, uh, they accurately understand what the other person is saying about 22% of the time. Hmm. Uh, and some people are really good at it. They're up to 55%. A lot of people are 0% uh, and who uh, think they're 100%. And so none of us are naturally really good at understanding others. It is a developed, advanced skill. And so in the book, I make this distinction between people who are diminishers and people who are illuminators. And diminishers stereotype. They're not curious about people. They don't ask questions. I often leave a party and I think, you know, that whole time, nobody asked me a single question. And I, I've come to deduce that only about 30% of Americans or maybe humans are question askers. The rest are perfectly nice people, but they're, they're just not curious about you. And so they don't understand you. And if you don't understand the people around you, you're going to be miserable and make other people miserable. The other side are the people who are illuminators. And those are the people who are curious about you, who are just very skilled at understanding human nature. And they make you feel respected, seen, and valued. And so Ian Foster, a novelist who wrote, I guess, like 100 and some odd years ago, his biographer said to him, he listened to you. He had a sort of an inverse charisma. He listened to you with such intensity that you had to be your sharpest, most honest, best self. And I'd love to be that guy. I tell the story in the book about Jenny Jerome, and I, I say it may be apocryphal, but it gets my point across, uh, that Jenny Jerome, who would later become Winston Churchill's mom, uh, when she was a young woman, she was in late 19th century England. She was seated next to William Gladstone, the great prime minister of England. And she left that dinner thinking that, she that Gladstone was the cleverest person in England. And then a couple of weeks later, she happens to be seated next to Benjamin Disraeli, Gladstone's great rival. And she left that dinner thinking that she was the cleverest person in England. <laughs> so it's good to be Gladstone, but it's better to be Disraeli. And so the book is really, here's how you become an illuminator. So I mean, I want to get back to that in a second, but it, does, it reminds me, you probably surely don't remember, but probably 20 years ago, I was talking to you about William F. Buckley, or maybe 15 years ago or something like that, and about one of the many characters in, and uh, we should tell listeners, ages ago, you were in the, you were at National Review briefly. Was it, it wasn't an internship, it was like a fellowship or something like that. It was like that, a right? fellowship for about 18 months, yeah. I'm sure it was you, you made this point. Other people have made it to me since that, as you know, there are people from National Review who kind of lost their minds in one extent or another. got very angry at the world, um, went, didn't all go full Sobron, but, you know, had issues. And it was you who said that part of the explanation is that when William F. Buckley cast his gaze upon you and took you under his wing and listened to you and talked to you, it was the warmest of sunlight. And then when he, his attentions went elsewhere, it got very cold very quickly and some people couldn't handle it. And I always tell people that for whatever criticism you have of Bill, Bill is arguably one of the most well-mannered human beings I'd ever met in my life. And I don't mean that in like knowing what fork to use. It was like, he could listen. And when he listened to you, he didn't care if he was sitting next to a governor or a secretary of state, he was talking to you and he was interested in what you had to say. And I, and I was blown away by that the first time I ever met Bill because I was just so intimidated by the guy. And he, he, asked, he was a good asker of questions. Yeah, he, he was phenomenal. His great skill was friendship. People re remember him for lots of things, which he should be remembered for. But friendship is the one of them. I remember when I was working for him for those 18 months, he was sort of on the outs with his son, Chris. Mm -hmm. And I became for a little while a a surrogate son a bit, I think I'd say. We went yachting and he took me to Bach concerts and stuff like that. And he would continually ask me questions. Uh, and my opinions on this and that, believe me, which I had no right to have an opinion on, but of course I spouted off. Uh, and I think, you know, as kids, we grow up to be phenomenal question askers. And so I have a friend named Naomi Way who teaches seventh grade boys in, in, in New York English and journalism. And so she asked them, her first time, she teaches them how to interview people and how to ask questions. And the first time she ever did it, she uh, said, okay, I'm going to sit in the front of the class. You ask me any question you want, and I will um, answer it honestly. And so the first question was, are you married? And she says, yeah, no, I'm not married. Second question, are you divorced? Yes. Third question, do you still love him? 
She's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Fourth question. And she, she says, yes, I do. Fifth question. Does he know? Do your kids know? And so kids will write, go right there. Yeah. And of course, we don't do that as adults because we want to be, you know, respect people's privacy. But we err on the side of modesty. I uh, err on the side of diffidence. Uh, I think most people are dying to be asked questions and they're dying to be asked questions about their own life. I now constantly ask people about their childhood. Uh, who were you in high school and how have you changed? Uh, and people just love to talk about themselves. And often it's because no one has ever asked them the story of their life. I, so I want to push back on some of this stuff in a second, but like, just so people know, uh, we didn't really answer the question about what you mean by being seen. Like, what does that mean just as a terminological thing? And then I'm going to do a little devil's advocacy on you. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's in the knowing. So I, I, for four years that I was working on this book, I often asked people, tell me about a time somebody saw you and got you. Uh, and some of them are, are very modest, incremental moments. Uh, and so one of them is I talked to a woman who got drunk when she was 13, first time she'd ever tasted alcohol. And she got so drunk, she's passed out on the front porch. Uh, and uh, her big, strict disciplinarian father comes out to see her and she thinks she's going to scream at her the things she's already thinking in her own head, which is, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad. Instead, he just scoops her up gently, brings her inside, lays her on the sofa and says, there'll be no punishment here. You've had an experience. So he was sensitive to understand he didn't need to scream at her at that moment. Another story, I've got zillions in the book, but an, an, another story involves a former student of mine named Jillian Sawyer, whose dad died of pancreatic cancer when um, she was in college. I taught her as a grad student. Uh, and uh, after he died, uh, she was at a bridesmaid at a friend's wedding. And she watched at the reception the father of the bride give a beautiful toast to his daughter. And she thought about the toast she would not be getting at her wedding. And it came time for the father-daughter dance. Uh, and she decided, I just, I'm going to skip this one. So she went to the ladies' room to go have a cry. And when she got out of the ladies' room, uh, she saw everybody from her table and the adjoining table had gotten up and they were just waiting outside the, the ladies' room. And she said, no one said a word, but each person just gave me a quick hug, even the boyfriends, the new boyfriends who I knew less well. And they didn't try to validate my grief. They didn't try to fix me. They just were there for me in silence. And it was just what I needed. So somebody at that table got up after Jillian got up and said, let's go be with Jillian and just be present for her at this moment. And that's, that's an act of great sensitivity and great seeing. And she felt seen at that moment. That's a great story. Um, I like asking people questions. I, I share with you. I know you like sometimes to have a drink alone and <laughs> people watch. I'm a people watcher. Um, I'm a inveterate eavesdropper. Um, and not for Purian, I just find it fascinating. I, I tell people all the time, I was once in the Fairmont Hotel in Seattle and at the bar of alone, and I listened to three luxury pen salesmen talk for over <laughs> an hour about the state of their industry. And it was one of the best times I yeah. ever had. <laughs> I just love that stuff. Um, but, uh, and we don't have exactly the same backgrounds, but the Venn diagrams overlap a little bit insofar as, you know, you have this line in the, you begin the book by saying how you were, taught to think Yiddish and act British. And that's, that doesn't sink my battleship sort of analytically, but it, it, it the, the peg gets close um, in terms of how my dad, you know, was raised or raised me. And, um, but so the part of the question, I guess, is like, are you, you know, the old cliche of every problem looks, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, you like asking questions. And so are you privileging asking questions of people as if that, uh, that it has more power than it is? Like, what is the social science to back it up? Or is it just your theory of what gets you through life? Yeah, first of all, I'm a guy who had no hammer and lots of nails. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so I grew up uh, not being a particularly good social uh, encounterer. Uh, I grew up emotionally diffident, um, and I spent much of my adulthood as sort of a practiced escape artist. Uh, I, if you had shared me with a vulnerability 20 years ago, I would have just stared at my feet uh, and, and had an appointment with my dry cleaner. And one quick story symbolizes for what I was, I think, before I've tried to make some progress. I was at a, I love baseball, big Mets fan. 
And I've been to a thousand games and I never had um, caught a foul ball. And I'm in Baltimore and a batter loses control of his bat. It flies into the air and lands at my feet. And any normal human being, since getting a bat is a thousand times better than getting a ball, uh, would be jumping up and down, high-fiving everybody, hugging everybody. I just put the bat on my feet and stare straight ahead like a turtle. <laughs> I, I look back on that guy and think, show a little joy. But I've tried to work, and I think the social science, to the extent we want to trust this stuff, is very clear. The thing that makes us happiest is social connection. Uh, and in my view, there's nothing crueler than indifference, than not feeling seen. Uh, Ralph Ellison's famous opening to Invisible Man is that people look at me and they see everything but me. They see their stereotypes. They see their imagination. They see um, their, the background behind me, but they don't see me. And when you feel invisible and unseen, you regard it as an injustice and you lash out. And uh, Baldwin, I mean, uh, Ellison gets at this. He says, I want to prove that I exist. And I try to lash out with my fists. And it's, it's rarely successful. So the first point I would make is the sense of feeling invisible is an absolutely crushing sense. Human beings need recognition as much as they need food and water. Babies come out of the womb looking for a face that will see them. And if you show, you've probably seen on YouTube these still face experiences uh, where they, experiments where they tell mom not to respond to their baby's bids for recognition. The babies go absolutely berserk because it's such, it's, it's just existential crisis. And I think it's that way for adults. And so I think a lot of the anger and pain in our society is caused by people who feel unseen, uh, whether it's blacks feeling the whites don't understand them, uh, uh, rural people feeling coastal elites don't get them, uh, young people who feel that nobody gets them, husband and wives in broken marriages who think the other person has no clue. So my first bit of evidence would be negative, that if you're unseen, it's just devastating. And so it's just very important to see the people around you. And second, on the more positive side, I can tell you, having spent the last four years tell, saying, tell me about the time somebody really got you, people describe with glowing eyes those moments when they felt seen, heard, and understood. Uh, and so, for example, there was a McKinsey study, uh, and they asked people, uh, they asked CEOs, why, did this, why, did, why do people leave your firm? And the CEOs say, well, people leave my firm to go... Um, uh, to go make more money somewhere else. Then they ask the people who left um, why you left. And the number one answer is my manager doesn't recognize me. And so people need that recognition. And then on the positive side, I can say I was just thinking of uh, a moment when I was in 11th grade. I said some smart ass thing on, in English class. And Mrs. Doosnap screams at me in front of the whole class, David, you're trying to get by on glibness. Stop it. And I was like humiliated on the one hand. On the other hand, I thought, wow, she really knows me. I'm so yeah. honored. <laughs> so those moments when somebody like gets you and sees who you are, even in your weaknesses, those are just profound life-shaping moments. And I, I do think the act of seeing another person is a generous act. Uh, Simone Bay say attention is the ultimate form of generosity. It brings forth growth in others, that if I see potential in you, you'll see potential in yourself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura Frames. Looking for a really special gift for this Father's Day? Whether it's the group shot from the family reunion, the 20-pound bass he caught last summer, or his favorite photo of mom, an Aura digital frame is the best way to display dad's favorite memories. Obviously, every dad in my life already has one of these frames because I'm obsessed with them, as you guys kind of know. Today's picture in our kitchen is just from three months ago of husband of the pod holding the new baby on the couch, and it's really cute, and 
and I make sure that our frame only switches pictures about once a day, but you can set it to switch every 30 seconds or once a week so that it's more like a real picture frame when you give it to your dad, your husband, whatever dad in your life needs a frame. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frames with preloaded photos and memories. Your father, your grandpa, your husband, or even your brother, let him see what a great dad he is with an Aura frame. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Father's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. This deal ends June 18th, so don't wait. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I'm wondering, because part of the pushback I have, I realize, I'm thinking maybe there's an important distinction to make. But um, one of the problems I have with, and I, just, just for the record, I've been complaining about young people since I was a young person. So I, have, <laughs> I, no one, I don't care if people say I'm one of those get off my lawn people because I've always been one of those people. But uh, one of my big problems with those damn kids today is what some people call main character syndrome. Right? It's this idea that they're living in a mor- in a movie and they are the the central f- they're the protagonist. We're both Yuval Levin fans, you know. Part of Yuval's, you know, it's on the bingo card for this podcast. You know, his big insight about the change in institutions is platforms using them as platforms versus using them as molds, right? To mold your personality and to, versus things to perform upon. One of our biggest problems in the culture are young people who want an enormous amount of societal attention. Do you think that that's coming from this desire to be seen in their personal lives and they're finding a poor substitute for it? Well, I think first it's um, coming from uh, human nature. I mean, we're, we, we are tend to be egotistical. We tend to have what people call naive realism, which is uh, uh, thinking that everybody sees the world from our, from our point of view. And so there's a story I tell in the book about a guy who's on one side of the river and there's a woman on the other side of the river and the woman screams at him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he screams back at her, you are on the other side of the river. So he can't see from her point of view. So I think that there's just a natural um, self-centeredness that we see the world from our own point of view. But I think if I'm going to complain about the kids these days, uh, though, again, it's not really about them, it's about all of us. I do think we haven't taught them skills. And so I just saw a study, it's not in the book because I just saw it, of the huge number of young men who've never asked um, a woman out on a date. And they try to figure out why. And the number one answer is they suck at flirting. (laughs) They don't know how to flirt. And so these are social skills like learning carpentry. Mm -hmm. Like how do you um, greet somebody, for example? So if we're just meeting, uh, we're silently asking ourselves or unconsciously asking ourselves a question. Am I a priority for you? Am I a person for you? And the answer to those questions will be conveyed in your eyes before any words come out of your mouth. And so, for example, in the book, I tell a story about a time I was having breakfast in Waco, Texas, with a woman, a 93-year-old woman named LaRue Dorsey. And uh, she presented herself to me as a stern disciplinarian. Uh, And I was a little intimidated by her. She was a teacher, and she said, I love my students enough to discipline them. Uh, And so she was tough. And then into the diner walks a mutual friend of ours, a, a pastor named Jimmy Durrell. And he comes up to our table, he sees us, and he grabs her by the shoulder and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. Uh, and he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best. I love you, I love you. Uh, and she turns into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. She is utterly transformed by that greeting. And part of it is he's just warm and fuzzy. But part of it, since he's a pastor, is when he meets anybody, he thinks he's looking to somebody made in the image of God. He's looking a little into the face of God. He's looking at somebody with a soul of infinite value and dignity. And so I don't care if you're Jewish, atheist, Christian, Muslim, whatever, but seeing other people with that level of reverence and respect is an absolute precondition for knowing them well. And when you are taught to see people in that way, then naturally you know they're not characters in your movie. They've got their own movie going. And so you focus on what is subjective about them. How do you see the world? And there's an Aldous Huxley quote 
Experience is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. And the reason conversation is so important, because you and I may have the same experience. We had somewhat parallel lives. We grew up in New York, Jewish homes, and went into conservative journalism. But I bet if we sat at a meeting, we would see different meetings. If we watched a speech, we would see different speeches. And so if we're going to have any sort of relationship, I've got to be curious about how you saw it, how does it compare to how I saw it. And so I would posit that as one of the, just the crucial conversational skills. And so in the book, I walk through all these different conversational skills. And one of them uh, is uh, don't fear the pause. If I start talking to you and I say something in a conversation, at what point have you stopped listening so you can think of what to say? And it's probably about halfway through my comment. And so my advice to folks is let me talk till the end. And then if you need to pause, uh, but hear me all the way out and you'll just get a much richer understanding of the people around you. I think you are not um, unaware that your fans and foes alike, and I consider myself a fan, uh, I know that you've been on a journey of all sorts of kind, right? And we can talk about the, the, the many roads you've gone down and the way twists and turns you've gone down. I don't think you could call yourself a conservative anymore. I do in the Burkean sense. Like, in, like I went back and reread all the books that made me a conservative. Uh, Wilmore Kendall and Burke and Russell Kirk and all those uh, folks. And I love those books more than ever. So in that sense, I'm still, I'm still a conservative. What's funny, though, is I remember Irving Kristol saying that neoconservatism in many ways just boils down to finding social science that proves your grandmother was right. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I think I am literally the last Japanese soldier still willing to have this fight about what neoconservatism is and was and should be considered. And it's not primarily a foreign policy thing and blah, 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 blah. But words move on and, you know, all that. Um, but a lot of your stuff here, it's not strictly politically ideological anymore, but it is kind of in a really profound way, neoconservative insofar as these skills that you're talking about are things that your grandmother would have told you, right? When you say hello to someone, use their name, look people in the eye, sit up straight, listen to people, don't be rude, all these kinds of civilizational things. And because we're forgetting them, um, you got to go dig up social science to prove grandma was right. I mean, is that fair? Yeah, I think it's totally fair. I think I'm neoconservative in a couple other ways. One is the belief that you can't build a healthy democracy on top of a rotting society. Uh, the, another is, a, would say the neoconservatives, James Q. Wilson, Irving, obviously B. Crystal, uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb, she wrote by under the name. Uh, she put moral life at the center. Uh, and so I'm, I'm proud to be called a moralist uh, in the sort of Samuel Johnson vein. That, and my belief is morality is a skill. It's a skill of treating each other with consideration in the concrete circumstances of life. And so if somebody suffers from depression, I have a chapter in there on how to sit with someone who suffers from depression. I can either show up in an ignorant way or I can show up in a sensitive way that makes them feel like at least I'm around for them. And so I had a friend who, who die, ultimately died of depression. But in the beginning, I was practicing the moral skill poorly. I didn't understand what he's going through. I didn't know how to sit with him. And so I would say things like, I've got an idea for how you can make the depression lift. You used to do these service trips to Vietnam. Why don't you do that again? Uh, and I learned later that when you tell somebody who's suffering from depression how to get out, if you give them ideas, all you're doing is showing that you just don't get it because it's not ideas they're lacking. And I think I became, I, over a hard education, I learned over the years that he suffered from this to be a little more moral, I would say. And it wasn't grand morality and it wasn't, I didn't do anything that could fix him and I, that was beyond my ken. But I could at least say, um, this sucks, this sucks. And that, that's, all, uh, with a depressed person, sometimes that's all you can do. Or that's you how can, you see them. <laughs> yeah, because it, it yeah. sucks. And, they, they, and you can say, I want more for you. Uh, and Viktor Frankl, I didn't say this to my friend Pete, but Viktor Frankl, when he was in the death camps, uh, he would say to people who were contemplating suicide, uh, life has not stopped expecting things of you uh, and that your suffering gives you credibility to be a force of great good in the world. As Thornton Wilder says, in love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. And so I think I inherited from Gertrude Himmelfarb, from Crystal, from uh, James Q. Wilson, 
and a lot of the others, and frankly, a lot of our contemporaries, when I was at the Weekly Standard, uh, this sense that the moral nature of society uh, is the primary nature and that societies do grow more morally healthy and more less morally healthy, or as Gertrude Himmelfarb would say, they could get demoralized. And so this book is really an attempt at practical morality uh, of how to be considerate with others. And it's informed not only by the neoconservatives, but by Iris Murdoch, who said that we normally see the world with self-serving eyes. And our great goal is to try to cut, cast what she called a just and loving attention on others, with emphasis both on the just and on the loving. Uh, and so how, how do we judge people competently is how we show up in the world. The loss of these skills, right? Um, you can do this sort of standard, it's like Hemingway's bankruptcy. It was slow than sudden, right? Um, there's a, I don't want to call it a just so story because I think it, there's a lot of truth to it about social media and iPhones and 2012 and tipping points and yada, yada, yada. But um, what is your theory of the case about, because it, it, it's, it's, it really isn't like a lot of this stuff gradually declined. It's like it was gradually declining and then just goes off a cliff um, in, you know, basically 12, 10 to 12 years ago. Um, what is, we don't have to have a monocausal explanation, but what is your, you know, theory of the case? Yeah. Well, I tell a bunch of different stories. The one is, I think you had Gene Twenge on recently. Um, it, it would be um, uh, the social media story. Uh, I agree with that one. There'd be the Robert Putnam story which is we're just not in civic organizations enough. So we're not dealing with each other as fellow citizens as intimately as we used to be. But the story I would emphasize, or at least add on top of those, is the moral formation story. That our founders understood that human beings, while wonderfully made, are also deeply broken. And they looked around the world and they said, if we're going to build a democracy out of these people, we need to do moral formation. And moral formation sounds pompous, but it's really um, three things. It's first, uh, teaching people ways to restrain their natural selfishness. It's second, helping people find an ideal that'll give purpose to their life. Uh, if you don't have an ideal, you, you really you're, you can't handle the setbacks of life. Nietzsche has this great passage, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you know why you're on earth, you can endure the setbacks. And the third part of moral formation is um, the skills of being considerate to people. The, and my book is really about that. Uh, and so if, if you're sitting with someone, uh, uh, or if you're just getting to know somebody, uh, or, or so let's say we're having a disagreement, uh, God forbid. Uh, and so we could fight and it could ruin our, our relationship or we could disagree well and disagreeing well involves again, skills. So mm -hmm. one thing we can do is we could, what they call return to the gem statement. If you and I are fighting there's probably something we agree upon. We both want what's best for the Republican Party, say. Um, and if we come to the thing we agree upon, then we can, our relationship will survive if we come to that gem statement. Or another uh, trick to do when you're in a violent disagreement or is um, find the disagreement under the disagreement. If we're disagreeing about po tax policy, maybe we have a different philosophy underneath that. Uh, so instead of fighting each other about tax policy, Let's find out what philosophical reason actually causes us to disagree. Or if we're in a conversation with somebody who loves Trump or somebody on the hardcore left, and I, believe me, I find myself in a lot of these conversations, and I'm sure you do. And, um, uh, and so I, I, my first reaction, like I was at a ball game a couple of years ago, and somebody sees me in the stands in the ninth inning, uh, and he turns around to me and says, hey, are you David Brooks? And I say, yes. And I'm expecting him to say, oh, I like your work. Mm -hmm. Instead, he says, you're an effing a-hole. <laughs> I think I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like furious at me. And my son is with me and he tries to intervene. And he says, you know, you probably went to Sidwell Friends in Princeton. And my son said, no, I went to Indiana University. What are you talking about? <laughs> like this guy had all sorts of elite stereotypes about <laughs> us. And then my wife tries to butt in and he pushes her away and says, go off me, woman. And then he he screams at me, look, my hands are shaking. I'm in the presence of Satan. Uh, and I'm, I'm not, too, not too satanic, particularly. <laughs> and so in that circumstance, I did not respond the way I preached in the book. In that response, I just, me and my son just let him have it. So um, that was not, maybe not the best response. But I've since learned 
and may, maybe that yeah, that guy was extremely violent and drunk, so it didn't matter. But when somebody comes at me from the left, say, uh, I think my first job is to stand in their standpoint. It's to ask them in three or four different ways, tell me more about your point of view. Tell me more about your point of view. What am I missing here? And I've learned it's a mistake to ask, what do you believe about this? The better way to ask it is, how did you come to believe this? And that way, instead of regurgitating some statement, they're telling me a story about an experience they had. They're telling me a story about somebody who was valuable in their life. And we may not agree, and we probably won't, but um, in any conversation, respect is like air, that when it's present, nobody thinks about it. When it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. And so at least I show them the respect of trying to understand their point of view. And doing that is a skill. It's a, it's moral, that kind of morality is a skill, which I try to teach. So uh, veering slightly into the punditry realm for just two seconds, since I introduced this idea of being on a journey, um, I would, I'd say it's not a secret because I've written it, um, that my most consistent disagreement, criticism uh, of, of your earlier stuff, with the more political stuff, um, was always that you're such a decent guy and you so hate nasty culture war fights that, and you're such an astute observer, the problem is, is that uh, the gain on your cultural microphone is too high. And so you end up finding the evidence that you want to find, right? And so like Bobo's in Paradise, you have the things about Burlington being this end of history place where politics is sort of over. And then, of course, politics get really crappy in places like Burlington not, not long after. And, um, and first of all, I always, I've just never asked you whether you think that's a fair criticism, um, or fair observation. Um, and secondly, like it feels to me in some ways that this, this book and your last couple books, to be honest, are in some ways a weird continuation of this, this tendency, which is, all right, I can't argue away the culture war stuff. We're just stuck with this stuff. So let me get underneath the hood and figure out how people can actually talk to each other better. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I don't think it's quite fair. Uh, first, uh, go, let's go back to Bobo's. Yeah. Um, and so that was a book about bourgeois bohemians, people with basically 60s values and 90s money. And mm -hmm. Burlington was the latte town uh, that was an example of that. I think I was quite accurate in the emergence of a new upper class for sure. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in the book. I'm not trying to say that wasn't a great book. It was, it was, yeah. But what what I was inaccurate about in that book was I thought that it was a, a class that all you had to do was study hard and work hard and you could join the class. What I did not appreciate is how the Bobos would then go to erect a whole series of barriers to guard themselves and protect other people from entering that class. I didn't understand to the degree to which the Bobos would basically create an inherited meritocracy, a, a, a Brahmin class headquartered in Stanford and Harvard and Burlington and uh, Washington, D.C., that would basically exclude everybody else. I didn't appreciate, even in our business in journalism, when I started in journalism, there were, were working class people uh, in journalism, and they've all been purged. Conservatives have been purged from the universities. So I underestimated the uh, importance of um, uh, the, how self-protective this class would be. I got that part wrong. Now, as for my ensuing books or the recent books, I am sort of on a journey. I'm on a journey, one, to, um, uh, to become a better human being, <laughs> and two, to address a society Cock. that my... <laughs> 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 Yeah, well, fair. Okay, I cop to that. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I also uh, believe that American society is over-politicized and under-moralized. And so we spend too much time talking about politics, which I do, it's my job, but not enough time talking about how do you build a friendship? How do you be a good person? And so the road to character was about people like Augustine and, and people like um, uh, Bayard Rustin or Francis Perkins or Dorothy Day. They were people who were pathetic at age 20 and were kind of amazing at age 70. I just want to know how they did that. And then the second mountain was about how do you suffer and get better from hard times? And then this book is about how to make people feel seen, heard, and understood. I don't think these are me avoiding the culture war. I think they're more important 
than a lot of the cultural issues we fight. And I'm happy to fight the culture war issues when, in, especially in my newspaper column. But I'm, I'm going to write a book that, A, will help me, but hopefully will help others. I mean, one of my favorite sayings about being a writer is, we writers are beggars who tell other beggars where we found, find friends or where we found bread. And so if I find something useful, I'm, I'd love to share it. And my greatest satisfaction is I find some tip that's useful and other people write it down so they can live their life in a better way. That seemed, I mean, the culture wars are important, no question about that, but it seems to me how we treat the people immediately around us is even more important. Yeah, but that, that's what I, I, what I, maybe I misspoke. What I said about the last, what I meant by the last couple of books is that it's your recognition that the culture wars are, are here. It may be lamentable or not, but we're not going to, it's what you had this conversational trick about getting to the gem question or the, yeah, the, gem what, the, yeah. the, 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 under, the, the disagreement beneath the disagreement thing, right? turns out the culture, I, I increasingly think the culture war stuff is less about the top line issues and more about my tribe feels dissed by your tribe kind of stuff. And, um, and this craving for recognition Thing. And so what I, that's what I meant by getting under the hood is like, okay, let's look at the, the code <laughs> underneath all of this stuff to figure out what's going on. I mean, it's, it's very much in like the, you know, and I'm a huge fan of this, uh, Jonathan Haidt stuff, which is, you know, what are the meta conflicts that explain the epiphenomenal conflicts? And if that's the right terms for it. And, um, um, and I'm, I find myself more at, one of the things about being politically homeless but ideologically grounded is you start getting more sociological as you look at political conflicts because you can't, I, I, I can't take seriously some of like, you know, like we had, we had, this is the only illustration of the point that comes to mind. Mick Mulvaney was, uh, did a podcast with us a couple of years ago um, and he tells the story about how Trump at the beginning of his administration thought, said to Mulvaney, oh, I got to watch out for those House Freedom Caucus guys. They're so conservative. They're like real ideologically serious people. And Mulvaney says, no, don't worry about it. Um, they're going to be your biggest supporters because at the end of the day, whatever they think about the conservative stuff, their, uh, their real motivating passion is being anti-establishment. And you're anti-establishment. And Mulvaney saw this as one of my big things is I can't stand people who confuse explanations and excuses. And as an explanation, it's very good, right? It's like these guys were more into being jackasses and, and being uh, overturning tables and whatnot. And the revelation is, is that, so all that stuff about deficit spending and, and reducing debt and all that kind of stuff, that was a useful cudgel against Democratic presidents or establishment Republicans but it's not something they actually believed when they had another anti-establishment guy in the White House. Then they let Trump spend money like a pimp with a week to live because the real thing was just trolling people. And, um, and so I, when I look at stuff like that, I look at, I, I, I go to sort of sociological explanations more and more these days than ideological things because I, I just can't take them in good faith as being sincere in a lot of their top line arguments. Yeah, I guess my reaction was like, I think I came out of college the same year as I went to the University of Chicago. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza and Laura Ingram went to Dartmouth. Uh, and so we were sort of peers coming out of college, coming to Washington together, being young conservative journalists together. And in retrospect, I think what I and John Podoritz and others had, we were sort of pro-conservative. But Laura and Dinesh and the other Dartmouth Review crowd, they were anti-left. And that turned out to make all the difference. Uh, and you can tell who was, the people who were anti-left when Trump, because he was anti-establishment, and those of us who are pro-conservative are where you and I are. But let me ask you a question. You mentioned that you're politically homeless and um, ideologically planted. Um, so I ran across this phrase from Isaiah Berlin, who said, I'm happy to define the rightward edge of the leftward tendency. Uh, and so I think I've decided that's me. I, I guess I'm on the leftward tendency. I guess I'm, you know, I like Biden, um, but I'm on the very rightward edge of it. And I found it doesn't, by the way, having made this transition probably gradually over the years, the left hates me more than they did when I was straight up conservative for reasons because people don't like heretics, I guess. But would you be comfortable with that rightward edge of the leftward tendency formulation? 
I mean, I, I mean, you know this stuff at least as well, if not much better than I do. Um, you can get, you can go down rabbit holes with, with etymology and labels and all that kind of stuff. I, I still, I get what he's saying. I get what you're saying. And like, I'm sort of with you in, directionally, but I don't like saying that I have a leftward tendency in this regard. Um, I will say that I am vastly more co comfortable calling myself um, a right-wing liberal in the sense that, um, you know, I mean, you know this, for years, you would always run into these libertarians who would, you know, cry into their beer about how they took the word liberal from us um, and um, we should get it back. They're the, the left of the progressives, we're the liberals, and the right can be the conservatives. And I always nodded as a matter of conversational, you know, uh, engagement. And, and I, I think terminologically, they're, they're, they are largely right. I have really grown to think I'm, I've become a passionate defender of the, at least the British English Enlightenment, bits of the French Enlightenment, German Enlightenment can go pound sand. Um, but generally speaking, when people talk about enlightenment principles or liberal principles, like I'm one of those guys and I'm on the conservative side of it because I agree with you that moral formation is the moral stuff is more important than, uh, the formal stuff, but the leftward tendency, I, I am not, when I hear the leftward tendency, I hear social equalizing, uh, wild concerns about things like inequality and that kind of stuff, which to this day, don't particularly offend me for liberal reasons, not for like crazy right-wing reasons. And so, yeah, directionally, I, I'm sympathetic to it. It's just there's something I will always stick in my craw about the leftward tendency because I think there are bad things in, not all of them, but there are some bad things within phrase, what we call the left that I don't want to associate myself with. There aren't a lot of bad things that are in the word liberal rightly understood that um, I wouldn't want to associate with myself with. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And I agree with you totally about the English Enlightenment. Hume and Burke and Smith are my heroes and they really got a lot right. Uh, but I, I don't agree with you about anything about the French Enlightenment. I'm not a big fan. I, I don't have much faith in the power of reason. Well, no, I, I, said, I said little pieces like Montesquieu. There's some good yeah, stuff there, true. right? You know, um, yeah, Diderot is not my guy. I don't want to hang the last king with the entrails of the last priest or any of that stuff, right? Yeah. So I, I guess where I would, the reason I put myself there is that my, I, I'm oversimplifying, but two of my heroes are Burke, who I mentioned, whose key concept is epistemological modesty. And then my other hero is Alexander Hamilton, who believed in limited but energetic government to enhance social mobility. So poor boys and girls like him could rise and succeed. And so when I take a look at the rightward part of the Democratic Party, uh, which would be like, I don't know, Larry Summers, somebody like that, um, I, I think he has a good head for how to use government to enhance social mobility. So poor immigrant kids can rise and succeed. And so a lot of the Biden stuff, I'm talking later today to Mitch Landrieu, who's run the infrastructure program for Biden. A lot of that money goes to, an overwhelming majority of that money goes to uh, folks without a high school degree. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we need to be doing. We need to give jobs to folks without a high school degree. Uh, and a lot of the CHIPS Act and stuff like that, uh, it's spawned amazing levels of investment in tech in Illinois and Ohio and, uh, and Iowa. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. So I'm very pro that, I, despite what the rest of the country thinks, I think the economy is in fantastic shape uh, compared to real world alternatives. Let me ask a, a slightly different question. This goes into vestigial heart versus head, which is, I find when I'm doom scrolling on Twitter, that when I look at the Trump people, uh, nah, it's like, okay, they're the, that's who they are. And I think it's kind of pathetic, but I don't get emotionally involved especially over the last month, as I've looked at the progressive reaction to Israel, I get infuriated. So I still have, the left still makes me more infuriated than the right. What's the question? Do you feel that way? <laughs> are you with me, brother? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, like, emotions are running really hot right now with the Israel stuff, and I am so disgusted. Like, I mean, just on the Israel part, it would be one thing if all of this reaction was a result of Israel 
seizing some territory in the West Bank or, or rolling tanks into Gaza unprovoked. But this knee-jerk flocking to defense of Hamas, when Hamas goes in and kills kids in front of their parents and parents in front of their kids, like that's what they're attacking Jews in the streets of New York over is Jews being mad about other Jews being murdered. I, I can't, the moral perversity of it is just wildly infuriating. Um, I will say though, because this gets at something, and I, I think it probably has to do with the fact that that, or you tell me if this is fair. Like you were walking away from some of the sort of movement conservative stuff earlier than a lot of other people earlier than I was, and and Trump accelerated the process, obviously. But it and for me, I, I still believe. Like people get don't understand why I get angrier at the right than they do at the left about a lot of stuff. Not, not on the Israel front, but just a general prospect. And my general view is that America is doomed without a healthy conservative movement. Um, you're not going to, all these people saying, well, the Democratic Party is the home of, you know, love of democracy and all this. I don't believe that that's true. Um, I find that a lot of, a lot of the ideas that are fashionable, I think there's a lot more post-liberalism on the left than on the right. But I'm far more offended by post-liberalism on the right because you need one party to be the brake pedal, you know, and you're never going to convince the left not to be the gas pedal. And so my problem with right-wing populism and nationalism stuff is that you're basically saying, oh, no, we can be the gas pedal. And, um, and a car with two gas pedals is going to crash. And you need someone to stand up for the Constitution. You need someone to stand up for restraint in the government's ambitions. And the idea that you're going to win that bidding war with the left is a recipe for friggin' disaster. Um, and it's going to destroy everything that I think is valuable and important about conservatism. And so it's, there's a difference between hating arsonists who live across town and arsonists who live in your house. And that's sort of why I get angrier at the right. I do want to ask you, since before you keep turning the tables on me, um, I like to point out to people um, that uh, sometimes a little puckishly and selectively that um, we've seen all of this before. And there was a time in the 1990s when there were people who were quite ardently calling for national greatness. Um, and they were none other than Bill Crystal and David Brooks in the pages of the Weekly Standard. <laughs> yeah, and, the, <laughs> and, and the Wall Street Journal, yeah. And the Wall Street Journal. And um, the very first panel I ever did as a young policy gnome wonk guy in Washington was on that national greatness stuff. And uh, I was on with David Quo and I don't know, a few other people oh, wow. and uh, maybe Ramesh, I can't remember, but... Um, and my position then was never have I been more torn by, by an issue that matters so Because <laughs> <laughs> I loved it ideologically and intellectually to engage in, but I just didn't think it had a lot of places to go. And I also thought the libertarian freak out about it was kind of nuts as well. Where do you stand on that? I mean, obviously your version of greatness is not Donald Trump's version of greatness, but like if you were going to do an intellectual history 50 years from now, you would have to find some sinew to connect those things at least a little bit. Right. I think that was Bill's and our attempt, I now in retrospect say, to take some of what Donald Trump tapped into and head it off in a more productive direction. And so our, our theory of the case was the party had become too Grover Norquist. It had become too anti-state. And so we had to have some sort of positive governing philosophy. And so we went back to Alexander Hamilton and we went back to the Whig Party. We went back to the early Republican Party under uh, Lincoln. And I remember in those days lavishly admiring William Pitt Fessenden. Well, I can't remember what <laughs> job he had. He was in the Lincoln administration, some um, job. And basically, you look at what the Lincoln administration did. Uh, they had the Homestead Act. Uh, they had railroad legislation. They had tons of infrastructure. They did a lot of stuff with government to enhance social mobility. And so that tradition carries on to Teddy Roosevelt. And then it probably dies out. There were time. There were microseconds. When I thought John McCain was a version of that, there were microseconds when I thought the same Rudy Giuliani was a version of that. And so we were trying, but I think we were tapping in to what was a spiritual void in conservatism and especially libertarian conservatism, which was around nation. 
uh, and around that our love of nation is, is a powerful political motivating force, and it really does organize our, our loves and organize our lives. And that was not being tapped into in a, in a, a, in a conservatism that was too market-oriented. And I had previously worked for nine years in the Wall Street Journal editorial page. And so I think our, that impulse is right, the insight that we needed some nationalistic form of conservatism that was not just the market, but the market plus uh, national governance. Uh, that was right. Uh, what we got wrong was that the nationalism, which would then emerge, would be anti-immigrant uh, and would be the Donald Trump-style populism. And so I, I regard national greatness conservatism the way I regard reformicons, if people remember that, that as efforts by people who understood there was something wrong with conservatism to modernize it. Uh, and then Trump came along and swept all that, that away. And I'm, I, I don't know, I have some hope for some reformicon sometime in the future. I mean, what Yuval Levin is doing at AEI with Matt Connetti and people like that, that strikes me as the, the most hopeful germinating place on the right right now, which is they're, they're serious people trying to modernize conservatism in a way that's non-Trump. And I don't know what, I, I, I will say this for myself, uh, and I tell you all this all the time, like I'm 62, saving the Republican Party is not going to happen <laughs> until I reti- after I retire. And so that's not going to be my project. And I respect people for whom it is a project, but it's not going to be my project. And then, frankly, there's just the blunt fact that I write for the New York Times. Um, and so my readers are like 92% Democrats. So what, why don't I try to fix that side of the aisle rather than uh, the Republican side of the aisle? Yeah, I mean, I, and there's a reason why this podcast is called The Remnant, right? Um, and part of it is part of it is not to knock, right? um, but part of it is like the whole biblical notion of a remnant is both a vestige of something that is lost, but also the, um, the seed stock to rebuild and redo it. And I, I agree. I mean, the AI is one of these places that it's sort of like the monasteries of, you know, of in, in Ireland that is keeping, <laughs> keeping things alive while things go south on the continent um, for a while. How the neocons saved Western civilization. That'll be our book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm game. Um, uh, as an observer, people, I know we're running out of time, but um, there is this poll that I, I've now seen two, I think there are two different polls uh, with basically the same finding that say that Republicans, when asked whether a person X is a person of faith, Donald Trump outscores Mitt Romney, Mike Pence, um, and basically Jesus, the rest. Jesus. Of, <laughs> the rest of, yeah, basically. Um, uh, and so, you know, at one level, I really don't like lecturing people about what their faith should dictate to them or anything like that. Um, um, and I've been a big defender all my life of people of faith being welcome in the public square because otherwise you're just saying that that secular sources of moral authority are valid and religious ones aren't, which I just think is ridiculous. But when I hear a result like that, it makes me want to cut myself. And at the same time, I understand that there's a social desirability bias and all that kind of stuff. When you hear that, like, what is your explanation? Do you think that they are, they sincerely believe it? Or they're saying F you to the pollster and the establishment? Um, or is there some other rationalizer that rationalization that let that you think lets them all off the hook? Unless you think, no, they're not only do they believe it, but they're they're right, and Donald Trump really is a man of faith. <laughs> that's what I believe. <laughs> yes, that's, he's the second coming. <laughs> the rapture is here. <laughs> um, Trump has come. Look busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, my wife Ann Snyder edits a magazine called Comment. And she has a good phrase. She grew up more in evangelical circles um, that um, evangelical went from being a, an adjective to a noun. And so it used to be a way of practicing the faith. And then it became a tribal identity. Uh, and, uh, and so it became, uh, it's just a political label. And I think you know the statistics as well as I. So the people who are the evangelicals who are most pro-Trumpy don't go to church. Uh, and I have a friend who's a Southern Baptist who's a pastor who says, you know, I and he's pretty anti-Trump, but conservative, very theologically conservative. He said, I started sprinkling sentences from the Sermon on the Mount into my sermons. And afterwards, people would come up to me and say, I really like that sermon, except for 
this little part, that was too woke for me. And it's a Sermon on the Mount. So um, I, I, do, I do think people have betrayed anything that's recognizably beatitudinal uh, in the nationalist cause. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, and one of the beautiful sentences from a friend of mine named Russell Moore, you probably know, Southern Baptist guy, uh, said people used to leave the church because they didn't believe what we believe. Now they leave the church because they think we don't believe what we believe. Uh, <laughs> and so I do think that is the crisis of, of evangelicalism, that politics, as I say, we're over-politicized and under-moralized. And politics have infested anything. And in a healthy society, to get back to the top of my book, um, in a healthy society, we practice the politics of distribution. Where should the resources of our society go? In an unhealthy society filled with lonely people, we practice the politics of recognition that I want a, a theatrical influencer who will make me feel seen and who will make the other f side feel ashamed and hurt. And so we now practice the politics of recognition. Uh, and I think it flows to get back to where we started from, you know, evangelicals felt invisible and scorned. Uh, they felt they were disrespected and unseen and threatened by the secular culture. And when they do that, you're going to get vicious. Uh, and so a lot of them became vicious. Uh, and, you know, I'm, there's a little section of my book, and this is taking it to the far extreme, of a guy who, there was a, a French journalist who was interviewing people who committed the Rwandan genocide. Uh, and uh, he interviewed one guy who had macheted his neighbor of 25 years. And he said, well, what was it like to kill the guy you lived next to for 25 years? And the guy says, well, the moment I struck him, I didn't really see his face. His face turned into a blur. And so that to me is the end result of really not seeing that the other human beings just turned into a blur. And I think consumed by anxiety, a sense of siege mentality, a lot of the Christian nationalists have everyone else is just a blur to them, as it is to the rage-filled left. All right, David Brooks, uh, I know you were a Busy man, jet-setting around, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm going to play computer solitaire for the rest of the day. So that's, that's, that's <laughs> um, my agenda. But thank you so much for doing this. And, and I hope to have you back. And I, th I thought I did a pretty good job keeping us clear of this rank punditry for the most part. Um, um, but uh, um, thanks again for doing this. And, and really would love to have you back. Always a pleasure. And we're on parallel, but not quite the same journey. So happy to be with you, as always. Okay, so David has uh, left the studio, and um, it was uh, it was great to talk to him. Oh, the, I should just for reminder for people, I meant to do it while he was still on here. Um, the book is How to Know a Person: The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. As I think you can tell, I'm a fan of David's. I understand. I have a lot of friends who are exasperated with some of his positions, but I think he defends his approach perfectly well. And I think he's just a brilliant writer and a really sweet guy. And it's great to have him on. And I highly recommend the book. Um, David's doing, David's doing something that's very hard for a lot of people to do, which is to bust out of a normal conceptual framework and try to get at the under underpinnings of how people think and approach things. And, um, uh, and I find it really, really admirable um, and interesting. So anyway, um, still there's still time to send your AMA uh, questions in. Uh, we're going to try and record that this week. I have to make a time with Guy. It's just a crazy, crazy week. Um, so send your questions to uh, the remnant at the dispatch.com. And also... I'll put it in the show notes. There is a, you know, Jake Tapper does this auction every year um, to help the troops stuff. It's one of these great charities to help vets. And um, I am, I've been auctioning off, voluntarily auctioning off a Zoom call for um, last few years. And this year I'm doing it as a have lunch with me in DC thing. Um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, and, uh, if you're interested, uh, you can bid on it. It's, I, I have no idea what it will go for, but it's for a good cause. And, um, there's that. Oh, also people are always asking me, um, 
you sure you want to eat that whole thing? Uh, but that's not important right now. Uh, people are always asking me, uh, when can they find me on CNN? And part of the problem is, is that it's sort of catch as catch can. It's not like the old days where I knew sometimes weeks in advance when I would be on special report. And so it was easy to sort of announce things. But I'm going to be part of the regular rotation, not on every week, but on, you know, a lot of weeks on Chris Wallace's new show on CNN, uh, which will air on Saturday mornings, I think at 10 something. I'll get you the exact information. Um, I'm going to be on this weekend and I'm going to be on the following weekend and I'm not going to be on the weekend of Thanksgiving. And uh, on the conservative side of things, it's uh, my understanding is it's like a rotation of three people primarily. I'm sure they'll have other guests from time to time, but it's Kristen Soltis Anderson, Raihan Salam, and me. And um, we'll take turns. And anyway, it should be fun. It should be interesting. And uh, appointment uh, viewing is now possible because I actually know when the appointment is. So with that, uh, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>